This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Hi, my name is Germ and this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. I am joined by uh, Peter Bogosian and just before I tell you all about him, if you don't know uh, anything about him, I'm going to bring him onto the screen. Thank you for joining me, Peter. Pleasure. Okay, so let's quickly let's quickly start at the start before we get to the good stuff. Um, uh, you are a professor of philosophy at Portland University uh, and uh, you've got a special focus on uh, things like postmodernism, modernism, uh, uh, crit critical theory, um, atheism, uh, the 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 study. I, I, I forget the name of the the, the, the I forget the term. Um, it's the study of learning. What is that term? Epistemology. Um, uh, yes, correct. Know what you know. Yes, right. correct. Yeah, and then you you got kind of infamous uh, about two years ago when you pretty much pranked the peer review process when it comes to um, sort of academia with the whole grievance studies affair otherwise known as what the so-called uh, what was what it called the so-called yeah yeah so-called square but I, I know it as the grievance studies so that was that's what that's what got you into at least my zeitgeist um, and then after that uh, okay. and then after that I uh, started following everything that you were doing so let's just quickly let's just quickly start there um, at the grievance studies because that's um, really interesting okay i do i did a lot of stuff before then but okay um okay well let's sorry, go back we, 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 we can go back even further so i know in your book you speak a lot about in your latest book you speak a lot about uh all the conversations that you've had over the years leading up to right. the grievance studies okay so we can start there also so that's one of my primary focuses how to have an impossible conversation which yeah. is the title of the book and i was I did my dissertation in prisons with prison inmates to increase their critical thinking and re moral reasoning abilities. And then I was heavily involved in the New Atheist Movement. I just, it's kind of a scientific skepticism. I have very little tolerance for bullshit. I should probably have asked. I assume I can swear on your show. Yes, of course you can. Yeah. And, and you're connected to Richard Dawkins as well. Yeah, so I, on the Richard Dawkins Speakers Foundation, and we did an app together with the foundation, uh, Atheos, to help people talk about superstition and religion. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the focus is on how to have a, a conversation across a divide, or what to say to induce doubt, or how to revise your own beliefs. And then I saw the nonsense, the madness taking over academia, and then my work took a shift, a temporary shift, and we wrote phony papers. About 20, 20 of them, I think, yeah. Hey. Yeah, 20 papers, a quarter of a million words in 10 months, and then the Wall Street Journal caught us. And they caught us because one of the papers was just so absurd and obscene <laughs> that <laughs> about dog rape in a Portland dog park. And one of them was about uh, the penis being a social construct, and it's not connected to being a male. Is that, is that, that's yeah, great. that was yeah. the proto-paper we did. <laughs> yeah, so, we, did that, we did that before we started the massive, the massive hoax, and that received a lot of... Uh, People were not not happy about that, to say the least. You was telling my wife this morning, nobody has a problem, or almost no one has a problem when you go after someone else's superstitions. But the moment you go after their superstitions, that's when they draw the line. But I mean, that's... So there's just, no, go, go on. Sorry. I'm sorry. No, you go. Um, that, that that's kind from of, the book. Yes. That's from the book, right? It is from the book, yes. Okay. This, yeah, go ahead. This is um, very much... What you're talking about there is very much the problem that seems to be taking over the Western world this postmodernist uh, sort of regressive 
anything goes thinking. I don't know what the best term is because it seems to encompass a lot of different fields of 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 of, uh, of lifestyle. Is that even the, the correct way to say it? It's the zeitgeist now. Yeah. It's, it's, it's called a privileged way of knowing the world. I had an interesting conversation with. I went to my daughter's. Do you have PTAs over there? Parent teacher associations. They're yes. like little meetings. Yes. You meet, yeah. And I saw this this thing on the um, on a desk about the patriarchy and about depression and racism and microaggressions. And you know, when you talk to these folks, I, I said, you know, what is your evidence for for this stuff? Why why would why do? You, and then she immediately went to her own self experience, like my experience mm-hmm. in the world. And I think that people overestimate testimony. We're not evolutionarily wired to mm. understand peer-reviewed evidence or double blinds or placebos. And then I presented other pieces of evidence. Just as, as a general rule, you don't want to do this, but she was, she had domain-specific expertise and she was teaching this in the schools. And I said, well, what about Scotland for 2017? Microaggression, strong claims, inadequate evidence. And of course, she had never heard of it. And I think a lot of this, and we write about this in the book, is just a fundamental ignorance about either the way reality works, it's just the people get in these ecosystems of belief. And the university is extremely good at um, purging voices, divergent voices. So if you disagree, you're just thrown out. You're not granted tenure, you're not granted promotion. There's a guy here, oh, you, you appreciate this. Do you know who Bruce Gilley is? There's no necessarily reason you should, but. Mm-hmm. He wrote this paper, The Case for Colonialism. <clears throat> People went crazy. They they sent the, the – he has a PhD. I think it's from Princeton. They wanted his PhD. They wanted his tenure. They wanted his job. The journal editor was sent death threats. So there is a um, – that's just par for the course in academia. You know, that's what they do. If they, they, don't, they don't engage ideas, the academy is lost. But, I mean, that's the, that's the premise. Does the academy have cancer? Oh, so go ahead. Sorry, but the 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 Skype line broke this. So I thought you, I thought you had stopped speaking. So my apologies. Um, but that's oh, the, that's yeah. the problem with um with academia these days. Universities are supposed to be the the epitome of ideas. Um, and um, it's 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 weird that it's not just in you know in your country, but it's all over the the Western world where ideas that are different to your own get suppressed and get and they become um. Uh, oppressive. Um, I mean, if, right. if you look at what happened with the with the election of Trump, I've, I, I mean, what I'm forty, right? I can't remember any U.S. You're president. Good for 40. Thank you very much. Um, my wife agrees with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I can't think of of a U.S. president that's had this much pushback as the current president. Whether or not you like him is is irrelevant. It's it's just this weird silencing this weird shutdown um and i don't know what it is it's almost like it's almost like sharks circling around a piece of horse horse meat um it, it's just senseless yeah and, yeah, and, the, and, and the thing that go ahead no, sorry i was gonna say and and that seems to be my understanding of what your whole grievance studies uh acad- academic papers were about it was to show the absurdity that's right now here's the thing that's very difficult to explain to people but you have a from, from what I've seen on your comments and stuff, you have a smart audience. This stuff has a single nucleation point. It has a single point of origin. And it is in grievance studies, gender studies in particular, 
the idea that everything is a social construct. And I just published a piece in the Philosopher's Magazine about this. So Michael Shermer wrote, uh, from the head of the Skeptic Society, wrote The Believing Brain and Why People Believe Weird Things. And it was one of the greatest critical thinking insights. And then I'll relate this to what you're saying. And that is that the smarter one is, the better they are at rationalizing, coming up with a bad reason. That's not to reason to, rationalizing a bad idea. And when you get groups of smart people together, they have a collective synergy, so they even get better at it. So people in, the, in academia now, almost wholesale, are rationalizing these ideas. And one of, one of the many ideas is deplatforming. Yes. Or... Which not is, listening to ideas yes. that are divergent from your own. So these have the in the zeitgeist, nobody talking to each other, everybody looking at each other like they're an existential threat, punching Nazis, all this stuff. Mm. It's all rooted in the literature. And that was what we attempted to do is to delegitimize that canon or body of scholarship yeah. because that scholarship is killing us. Uh, Jordan Peterson spoke, uh, he said something about uh, the idea of intersectionality and it will keep it'll keep subdividing until it reaches the individual. It has to. Yeah, which is which is an interesting yeah. which is an interesting horseshoe. Yeah, it is an and that's another thing the horseshoe theory we could talk about but mm. instead of looking for ever more minute divisions among people, oh he's lesbian and black or she's this or mm. non-binary disabled, we need to look at superordinate identities, things that bring us together not things that rip us apart. Uh, uh, but that's the whole idea of celebrating our differences, not celebrating our similarities. Yeah, but okay, yes, and so that's from the book too. Instead of yes, but so if I say but, <laughs> I engage everything you said. Right. So, yeah, that's the hardest one for me because I'm so conditioned to do it. Here's the the problem is that you have people in the academy in particular, and that's the other thing Peterson says is it leaks out mm -hmm. about five five years after that, where these young kids, the professors look at the universities as indoctrination mills. And then they, the kids get out and they bring utter nonsense with them. No evidence whatsoever. In fact, evidence that's against this stuff. And so the question is, how do we push back to have a more just, more humane, more fair, more rational society? Well, that segues quite nicely into uh, what, what actually got me onto you more than um, your grievance studies was, and I think everybody needs to buy this. Whoever's, whoever's watching needs to buy this book that I bought. I don't know if you can see it there, but this is, yeah, there we go. That's it. How to have impossible conversations. Thank you. That, I appreciate that. I, I love the book so much that I also have the audio book and I'm going to buy the paperback in the new year. Um, very kind. Thank you. I honestly think, and I'm not saying this because you're on the show, but I, you can ask, you can ask my, my friends and family. It's for me, it's one of the most inspiring books um, I've read in many years. I think the only other book that I've read that's had such a big impact on me is, is Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, right. And your book reminds me of that. It's got elements of, of, of the approach to, to conversations, uh, which, which are weirdly familiar. I don't know if there's any kind of connection there, but um, it doesn't really matter. It's, the, the fact is, is, that, is that it's had a massive impact on me. And I think that if more people read your book, it would d dramatically change the way in which people can have conversations because instead of silencing and shutting down ideas that are different, you need to, as you say, speak and have a, that's the best way you can persuade somebody. Yeah. I, first, thanks for your kind words. I appreciate it. The book is really a life's work 
and then I partner with James Lindsay, yep. who is the, the collaborative effort in this. It brings the conversations and the idea from the prison stuff through the religion, through it broadens the scope of that from my app and my first book and my, my published work. But the so so tell me, let me ask you. Um, let's take that away that into your conversation with the Westboro Baptist Church. Yes, what yes, was his yes. name again? Uh, Steve Drain. Uh, he was on my show about three weeks ago. Right, and I, I watched that episode. I thought you did a great job. Thanks. Um, that gets to chapter two, goals, what your goal was. If your goal was to make people aware of what he believed, mm. I thought it was wildly successful. Because yeah. everybody listening to that would have had the same impression. I now understand what he believes. He's not trying to hurt people. Mm. This is a very sincere person. We talk about in that, that in the book. Mm. In Plato's the Theotetus, he says, people don't knowingly believe or do bad things. Yes. They just act on the information they have. Yeah. So he has beliefs that are utterly deranged, but yet, and Steven Pinker talks about this, that the, the moral mind, his moral mind has overwritten his rational mind. So he really is doing what he thinks is the right thing to do. The, the problem just doesn't lack reality, it, but it is internally yeah. coherent. Like the whole thing is consistent. Yeah, and, and it, it makes sense if you if you buy into his thinking. Um, and and you'll notice that the, I don't know if you saw the whole thing, but right at the very end, I used I, I used something. Scales. Yeah, I used something that you actually said in your book, where you ask somebody how confident they are in their belief, and that confirmed the entire discussion that he was never going to change his mind um, about anything. So it was more about just learning about what he's about um and yeah. hopefully and hopefully chat again in the future which he was very happy to do and i mean isn't that a good thing i mean a lot of people got upset with me before i did that show saying uh, uh i've got some insults i want you to throw at him and you must really draw some blood and i said no i'm not going to read out insults right. what is the point he's just going to push quit right that's why people change their beliefs from a point of view of psychological safety. Yeah. And that's why anytime you create an adversarial relationship with somebody, that adversarial makes it more difficult for you to induce doubt. And I could tell you things that, that I would say to him if I were you if I wanted to induce doubt, but that wasn't the point of the conversation. No. The point is to just, this is what this guy believes. He's very sincere. He thinks he's a good person. Now you watch this for an hour and you have an excellent idea of what this guy believes. Yeah, and the thing is, I, I don't have the, the skill set to induce doubt. Remember, I'm, I'm a cartoonist. That's my profession. I'm not a journalist. That's why I don't talk very well. I draw pictures. My, my, my communication comes through my, my, my drawings. Um, and, this, and I've done, what, nearly 7,000 of them over 15 years. Um, and it's very difficult for me also, to be, to be brutally honest, it's very difficult for me to have... A conversation without coming off as maybe self-righteous or arrogant because remember satire is about coming from a position of I'm correct and you're wrong and you're an idiot and and I'm and I'm pointing out your folly so so when so when it comes back to having a conversation inside of me I'm burning going oh I just want to just stab that knife in and and then I'm thinking no 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 yeah it's a terrible way to do it but mm. having said that and that you didn't do that, don't you sincerely feel that you have a much better understanding of what he thinks and why he thinks it and what he believes and why he believes it? 100%. Yes, exactly. And in Absolutely. Yeah, as did I when I listened to that. It was a great conversation. And so 
anybody who told you, oh, you know, tell him to fuck off or, yeah. you know, tell him he's a retard, you know, any of that nonsense, it just doesn't do what people think it's going to do. I mean, what, what is the point of that? No, I, I don't no. know. It makes them feel better about themselves for five minutes. I yes. Think. It calcifies their worldview. It makes it more difficult to instill doubt when you do that. So it's the exact opposite approach you should take. Do you find, though, that, and this kind of weirdly uh, uh, interlinks again with your grievance studies, but you're, you know, you, you, you think of, you think of how there's this biased sort of a narrative that happens in, in, in not just postmodernist academia, but it happens, for example, in an, another field of interest for me is climate science. If you have yes. any kind of questioning, you're called a, a denialist and you get cast aside, which of course goes against the very grain of science. Uh, science is about skepticism. And I know that one of your fields of interest is scientific skepticism. Yes, it is. Yeah. So that's the thing. It's very... It's very tricky. That's why we recommend in the book, I think it's chapter five, those disconfirmation questions yeah. are just vital. And I was teaching, I teach science and pseudoscience at my university, and I have somebody come in to talk to this who's, who has a PhD in, in domain-specific expertise in climate science, and I have someone who, I wouldn't say this this person's a meteorologist, I wouldn't say think but they're wildly overblown. And so I think it's important I teach the students how to ask disconfirmation questions. Under what conditions would you revise your belief? What, yes. could, what piece of evidence could come in to tell you that that, that – so even asking those questions opens up a little cognitive wedge in someone's yeah. belief structure. So those disconfirmation questions and the techniques in the book work really well when you combine them together, like with scales. How confident are you that's true? Under what conditions could you? So he, when you asked him how confident are you, that was your last question, I think. What did he say? He said 10. Yeah. Okay. So all the questions that follow from that are different. So then the, the response to that is you have to figure out what your goal, you have to re go back to chapter two, what's your goal. Mm. Um, so then here's something you could say to him oh that's that's interesting so then that your beliefs are not based upon evidence yes and as you so that's what it means to, to formulate sorry uh, sorry every time the there's a slight break i, I keep thinking that you that you stop talking right <laughs> okay. um yeah yeah go ahead no i was gonna say so in in, in that instance in that instance you 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 have to recalibrate your 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 conversation you're not going to convince them, so you have to, as you said in your book, you got to you got to calibrate your your questions. Then it's a very it's for, we didn't we haven't actually even used the word yet, but for those watching, um, this is what's known as the Socratic method, right? Um, which is a series of questions rather than um, debating. Oh, and that's the other thing. It's about having a conversation, not not winning. It's about understanding. Yeah, and sometimes sometimes winning, like Plato says in the Gorgias, is when you change your mind. And you mentioned, so the, the Socratic method is the skeleton, that's 2,400 years old, mm. and added to that skeleton is we have neuroscience, hostage negotiations, cult exiting, drug and alcohol counseling, prison, I mean, the whole thing is added to that. Yeah. So you mentioned calibrated questions. Calibrated questions are how and why questions as opposed to questions that I asked you, are you feeling good? Yes, no, yeah. binary questions, yeah. but you know, how, how, how do you put something together or, you know, what would you do if they don't lend themselves to yes, no. So all of these 
work well. Now, when he said 10, if there was one response you could give, depending on what your your goal is, is you could say to him, oh, that's really interesting, so that those beliefs aren't formulated on the basis of evidence. You didn't come to those beliefs on the basis of evidence. Mm. My bet is that he would have said to you, yes, I did. I think, I think if, you're quite correct, but as you say in your book, it's about morality. Right, the moment he says, yes, I did, okay, so this is about morality, that's chapter you really did read it carefully. Yeah, that's chapter seven on how to speak to an ideologue. Mm. And ideologues don't think that they're ideologues. No. I'm, I'm sure that he doesn't think that he's an ideologue. Um, but if you have a belief, if your belief is 10, then that belief isn't formulated on the basis of evidence. Because to formulate a belief on the basis of evidence yeah. means, by definition, that another belief could come in that would cause you to revise that number. Yeah. And if the answer is, well, there is no piece of evidence that could come in, then it's not formulated on the basis of evidence. So what is that belief formulated on the basis of? Well, it's about him being a good person or a bad person. Exactly. Yeah. So then you have to, that's the angle, that's the wedge that you try to help him reflect on those beliefs. But I mean, okay, so I'm South African and as you are probably well aware, um, my country has a history of racial tension and conflict. Now you, you want to you talk about having impossible conversations. I'm a white male in South Africa with uh, who's just recently come out of the apartheid system, which was dominated by uh, white people. There is right. a lot of racial tension in this country. The, now we're talking about some serious, serious conversations and how you get, right. how you move forward. Uh, and this is why yeah. I think the kind of insight that you have is very, very valuable, but it needs to be calibrated um, into a South African context. And I don't, right. I don't know how one convinces um, or one how, how one gets past a lot of the racial tension. I know that you in America, you've also got racial tension and all that. But so I suppose you can to some degree relate. But it, it's for me, it's such a difficult thing because I come from a background that's impossible to defend and I wouldn't want to defend it. So then how do you go forward with that kind of conversation? And then again, if, say, if you're coming from the other I would side. Say exactly that. Sorry, say that again. I would start exactly like I would I would start exactly like that. This background is absolutely impossible to defend. It's reprehensible. It's disgusting. Now we need to move forward. So you you threw not so you acknowledge the extremists, but in your case it's the whole system, right? Yeah. So you acknowledge the extremists of the system, and so that's a rapport building. We talk about that in the book, acknowledge extremists. But in that context, it's really the whole systemically extreme. Um, and so that's a goodwill builder. And then the common identity, the subordinate identity, how do we move forward from there? Yeah. So that's one thing I think is important underlying this conversation. I believe that morals are you can rationally derive morals like you can rationally derive why it's good to be fair to people how but if give me an example huh? give me an example of how oh, you can rationally uh, do that oh it's simple um simple if you know i don't know if it's simple um do you know who john rawls is the philosopher john rawls i'm sorry i don't so he has this idea that we're behind a veil of ignorance and we don't know we're going to be born into a society, but we don't know our place in society. We don't know if we're going to be gay, black, disabled, mm. transgender. We just have no idea what we're going to be. Now you formulate the rules for the society. 
if you did that, so for example, gay marriage, should we allow gay marriage? Well, if you do the thought experiment, every it's so the idea is reason is univocal. There's a univocality of reason. It leads to one conclusion. You can do this. A gay, disabled, black, trans, lesbian person can do this. I can do this from America. A 13th century Japanese samurai can do this. What kind of a system would you want your enemy to create for you? That's what happens when you take your own interest out of something. So, for example, the reason why you would want the reason why gay marriage is rationally derivable, because if you're in that original position that John Rawls talks about, you don't know if you're going to be gay. So you wouldn't want to put restrictions on mar on gay marriage. Oh, OK, I understand. So the root of, yeah. So the root of the whole thing is, you know, how do we proceed? Given that we had a horrific legacy, what's the best way to proceed? And I would imagine that the difficult, if not impossible, conversation there would focus around reparations. Well, that, that, that's pretty much the biggest talking point in South Africa, and it has been for the last few years. But I think there's a weird kind of conversation that's happening globally along that same line. I think Australia, I mean, I just read this week, I didn't know that Australia has a, uh, a national sorry day every year where basically white people have to say sorry to Aboriginal people um, for what happened, you know, centuries ago, which I, I find quite ridiculous that you're saying sorry yeah. for something that you didn't do. But okay, fine, whatever. And I and I know that the same kind of things happening across Europe and the U.S. where there's all this talk about reparations for slavery and whatnot. And in a weird way, this all horseshoes back to your original conversation of of uh, <laughs> grievance. Right. And and and, and, and why and again, is it happening? Well, that's a really good question. And the reason that it's happening, and if we didn't get caught by the Wall Street Journal, Mike Nana. You can watch those videos that he's put out about the grievance studies would have made that connection for how what happens in the academy doesn't stay in the academy. It leaks out of the academy. We are teaching people constantly to look for grievances and to find grievances. The, the, I was told when I was in college, and this blew me away when I thought about it, and that was like in what, 1985? The average person, in fact, even almost everybody in the society has a better life in terms of dental care, health, quality yeah. of life, clean water, hunger life than a 17th century king. Yeah. Things are constantly getting better. I'm not, I'm sitting here talking to you. You're not in a refugee camp. I'm not in a refugee camp. That alone is amazing. Mm. For, I have dental care. You know how much it sucks to have dental pain? <laughs> so, uh, in fact, I was at the dentist and he said to me, well, last time someone had, you had dental surgeries in the Stone Ages. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but but we're constantly, and Steven Pinker talks about this in Enlightenment Now. Michael Shermer talks about this in The Moral Arc. Matt Ridley. So many people have talked about how things are definitely getting better. But yet in the academies, we're constantly taught through critical theory, race theory, queer theory, gender yeah. theory, all this stuff, that, that we have to find a, a grievances. There's oppression everywhere. The, Look, is there oppression? Yeah, there's no question about it. Is there racism? Yeah, of course there's racism. There's no question about it. But, you know, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, Lukianoff if you haven't read it in The Calling of the American Mind, talk about the best way to deal with these things, not to train people to constantly see grievances. That makes them less resilient, and it rips us apart. It prevents us from solving problems. Hence the book, How to Have Impossible yeah. Conversations. How do you have a conversation with someone who's utterly preoccupied by finding grievances everywhere? My wife actually uh, said to me some time ago, she thinks that social media has had a huge impact for all the wrong reasons 
on exactly this that people yeah. spend too much time arguing on twitter and facebook and getting involved in stuff that really has no uh significance in the real world um and looking for things because yeah. they have they see somebody doing something on the road they can take a picture and post it on social media rather than contacting that that company or that person they uh, uh, uh publicize it um for it's a tremendous problem yes and that almost seems like a sense of it seems like a type of narcissism yeah and it's a type of narcissism where you get rewarded for your own narcissism because you're in a community of other people and then you can virtue signal Mm. what i find so upsetting is that the whole cancel culture thing is utterly insane to me um do you have that over there yet Uh, yes yeah so um so do you remember i'll tell you i'll tell you my first experience of it. Um, I forget his name now. The the guy on Trevor Noir is that it? Uh, well, he hasn't been cancelled. He's quite a hero in South Africa. But um, who was just cancelled over there? Who's big? Who? Well, let me tell you what happened a few years ago. Uh, oh. So you remember the the um, the uh, Muhammad cartoons in Denmark? I think it was two thousand and seven or nine. Billions post. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So that editor, and I forget his name now, uh, was invited to speak here just a few years ago uh, at, at the uh, University of Cape Town. And there was a big protest and they cancelled his speaking tour. And he was brought privately, which I attended, uh, to a, a golf club where he spoke. Um, and it was, it was very interesting because he was talking about those cartoons uh, and, uh, and he was talking about how the university cancelled his speaking arrangement and that's exactly what you're talking about right now yeah so i'm talking about two things one that's a disinvitation so disinvitations are rampant canceling is when someone made a mistake usually a famous or oh, popular right. person okay and you boycott them right so it's a it's uh that's like miley miley and ben shapiro uh, well, yeah, when they were supposed to debate uh, at Milo's peak and then Milo decided not to. I think they were going to go on Ruben and do that. But um, when you're canceled, you somebody's upset about something you've done. I just released a – I have a video coming out, and I spoke about this at London in the Gladstone Library. That, you know, people – so Justin, for example, is a, was a proponent of cancel culture, and then – he got caught in blackface. He said he did it once, and then multiple videos emerged of him in blackface. And you saw, and I'm not necessarily criticizing them. I have a very different idea. You know, my friend Gad Sad thinks that he should be canceled and, yeah. and other people. I don't think that you should – the way to end cancel culture is not to keep canceling people. It should not cancel anybody. Yeah. It's to not boycott someone for a tweet they made when they were 15 about gays. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, oh, that happened. Yeah, that happened to Trevor Noah. Very illiberal, huh? That happened to Trevor Noah. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 a very illiberal way to run a society. There's no redemption narrative. There's no forgiveness. There's no. You're perennially stained. Everybody makes mistakes. I've made mistakes. You've made mistakes. And the culture has changed around that. Yeah. So the values and morals of the culture have changed. Sorry, Fleming Rose. That's the, that's the editor's name. What was the editor's name? Uh, Fleming Rose. And I think the the the, Ni- the Nigerian guy you're speaking of, I think he's a rapper, Burner Boy. I think that's his name. I think uh, who got cancelled. Who got cancelled. Uh, but yes, so so this is happening as you say all over all over the world. And your concern, which I think is the correct concern, is 
it shouldn't be happening. The, you get nowhere by, by, by shutting down other people. You get everywhere by speaking, even if you disagree. And in fact, in your book, you say, if someone's got a very, very different opinion to you, that's an excellent reason to become friends with them. Yes. Yeah. And what happens is we had, I remember my parents had friends with all, I'm jealous you're drinking wine and it's middle of the day. I'm not drinking it. Um, <laughs> Uh, my parents had friends with different political orientations, and every time we and we university with this, every time you you don't speak to somebody about a belief, it's not that the belief goes away; it's that it it metastasizes, and you other people, oh, he has a different idea. He's not like me. He's a bad person. No, he's not a bad person. That's one of the things that I think that interview with the folks from the Steve from the Westboro Baptist yeah. Church. Yeah, it, it, this person, he is absolutely not a bad person. No, I don't think so at all. And I don't think he would hurt you. And I think you'd have a great time um, uh, if you had to have dinner with him. I think you'd, you'd get along great. Uh, you'd probably find a lot, a lot of things in common. Um, and speaking of impossible conversations, a few weeks before him, I don't know if, if, I, if I told you, but I, I spoke to Mark Sargent. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's got a show on Netflix. He... <laughs> He is pretty much the leader of the world's flat earth movement. And oh. there's a pretty impossible conversation to have. It was a, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, though, because I realized that he wasn't going to change his mind. Uh, so I just wanted to learn how, right. how he got to this place where he thinks the earth is flat. Yeah, exactly. And again, I bet your listeners love that. I bet your viewers love it's that. It's one of my most popular so episodes. Yeah, so that's part of the issue is mm. we're so preoccupied with disproving someone's conclusions. Mm. So everybody's walking around conclusion, conclusion, you know, earth is flat, gun control is good, apartheid's bad, apartheid's good. Whatever the conclusion is, build a wall, no wall, more immigrants, more Mexican, it doesn't matter what it is. But what we should be doing is shifting into the epistemology mode, which we mentioned, how you know what you think you know. Yeah. How did someone come to that conclusion? Why does someone believe that? Does someone know something I don't know? If they do, I want to know it too. So instead of thinking about oh, flat earth, no, the earth isn't flat, it's ridiculous. I mean, of course it's ridiculous, but that that doesn't tell you how that person, what is this evidence? Is formally evidence? How did the person come to that conclusion? Those things, they really make for the, con the conversation far more engaging and they help you grow as a person intellectually too. And then the next time you have that conversation, you can use what you learned in the last conversation. So, I mean, as you know, I'm a cartoonist. I, on a daily basis, get labeled things from sexist to racist to uh, homophobe to Islamophobe. Okay, you name it. It's there. It's on the list, right? And for the most part, I just laugh it off. Um, I mean, I've, I've had so many labels, I can write a book. But... The reality is, at some point, when you're actually having a conversation and people genuinely believe this, right. how do you actually, how do you respond? I mean, I get some, look, the truth is I get angry sometimes. I mean, you, you, you are human. You, you get aggro when, when people you, are accusing you unfairly of, of stuff, and it can affect your career. Okay, so you get at the fact that you're accused, or you get angry at the fact that both. Somebody <laughs> accuses you of something you don't believe. So that's a problem that I find mm. that's very different. If, if somebody is 
doing no intellectual work, not even reading an article or a cartoon, and then they decide to attack you anyway. I find that constantly happens to myself and Helen Pluckrose. And, and for me, I find that that gets me angry when they do that to my friends. Mm. But I'm so used to people mischaracterizing things yes. that I say. So there's a difference between getting angry at somebody who doesn't read your cartoons or mischaracterizes them. For that, I would say to you that you have to figure out whose voices not to listen to. Mm. They're just, they don't matter. They're nobodies. Yeah. I mean, and it really is from a certain segment of the society. It's, do you have the expression tall poppy over there? No, what does that mean? Tall poppy. It's an Australian, yeah, it's an Australian expression. It means when the poppy grows up, you want to just cut it down. Okay. So because of your success as a cartoon artist, they'll do everything that they can to cut you down, yes. to humiliate you. But and then that bleeds perfectly into cancel culture, then yeah. they'll try to cancel you. So that's one thing. So whose voice is now, if you had people mm. you really respect come to you, and I don't know who's in your space. No, I don't know who that would be. No. They said, Oh, man, you this cartoon was way over the line. And you should be ashamed. Of your, okay, so those people you need to listen to. Yeah. So the first order of business is you have to figure out whose voice is not to listen to. And the second thing is, you can be criticized for things that have nothing to do with you or your cartoon. Maybe it's yeah. resentment. Maybe they're just to have psychological, they're damaged or they're mm. angry or, I mean, you just, you have no idea why that is. But I think that it is definitely a skill that I have had to learn of not only figuring out whose voice to listen to, and this is the where we both lose because you, I would imagine, just as I would want feedback and criticism of my ideas you would want feedback yes. and criticism of your cartoons what you to be better but, yeah exactly but it's hard to get that when you called nazi moron mm. Griffith, like so what far so the right consequence yeah yeah the, the consequence of social media then is you just can't look at all those mm. because they're not sincere comments they're not in they're not i don't like to use the word faith this way but they're not good faith and they're not acting in good faith so you just you just have to not look at them uh, something that really struck a chord with me, uh, and I can't tell you why, because I have no dog in this fight at all. But in in your book, you talk you're talking about uh, the you're giving some examples of hostage situations, and I right. I stopped. I remember I was I was sitting in bed reading that chapter, and I just stopped to think that has to be the most intense conversation imaginable, right? Someone is potentially going to die if your conversation goes wrong. That that there just brings it right home, and that there that's is, right. and that's the ultimate in good conversation. You can't just insult that person; he's gonna he's gonna shoot the hostage. Yeah, and that's a great example of why you need to create psych psychological psychologically safe environments. You need to build rapport. You mm -hmm. need to find commonalities. Uh, you need to try to understand where yeah. someone's coming from. You need to engage those ideas. Hostage negotiations is the pinnacle, no question about it. Uh, there's an interesting comment, if you don't mind me uh, uh, throwing one at you here. But yes. in the comments, in the it. comment section, someone's asking, "Are you, are you okay then not to listen to the voice of the majority?" Um, no, I think you should totally listen to everybody's voices, majority or minority, because you need to figure out what they believe so you can better navigate that landscape. But how do you listen to the voice of the majority? I mean, it's a, it's a huge number of people. You just, you're talking oh, about... Oh, that's easy. You just listen. 
Well, I can't say in your country, but I can clearly tell you how to do it in my country. Okay. You just look look at um, Fox News, right? <laughs> so so you look at the major. That's the largest network they have. The I think Tucker Carlson is the most mm-hmm. listened to program, or I think up in the top three is Rachel Maddow. So. Um, while I have very substantive political disagreements with Tucker Carlson, I was actually on Tucker Carlson with him. I listen to his, I listen to what he has to say. I try to think, okay, how does he know? It's the same techniques from the book. So that's one way okay. to do it is to just listen to widely popular media. Uh, but the same person has just made another comment saying, um, but then that becomes individualistic, doesn't it? I don't understand. I, I'm also not quite understanding how he's making that connection um, from listening to the voice of the majority to the individual i'm not quite certain how that what he means by that uh, i'm sure even if you if you majority you should things people have to say just so that you if no other reason so i wrote a published a piece about this mm. i called it hygiene belief hygiene the fancy word in greek is doxastic hygiene but you, you want to listen to other people just as you have hygiene for your teeth you know mm. you floss and you brush so too should you have hygiene for your beliefs and part of hygiene for your beliefs is stopping believing things that are in, that are not true, uh, calibrating your beliefs to the evidence, and listening to beliefs that are different than yours. That's absolutely indispensable. You cannot proceed. You cannot engage in belief hygiene unless you hear ideas that con- that conflict with your own, and and unless you're offended, right? And so that's mm. part of what we're doing in the university. No, nobody can be offended. Nobody. Well, you know what? Some people have to be offended because they believe insane shit. Yeah, but now that's interesting because how do how do you know that they're wrong? Because remember you you were saying a few minutes ago oh, that's, that's it's a great question. Uh, Sorry, the, the lag on Skype. Yeah, oh, it's a great yeah, question, but it's a very very easy easy answer. And the answer is you look at the method they use to arrive at their conclusion. Okay. So let's say for example somebody believes something that I believe that gays are allowed to marry each other. Do you have gay marriage over there? Uh, we were the first, one of the first countries in the world to, to adopt it into oh. our constitution. Good, congratulations, it's a wonderful moral progress. So let's say that someone believes that, forget about what they believe, just ask them how they, how they came to that. And if they said, well, I, I, uh, I cut the head off a chicken on my, my Subaru this morning, okay, so then the process that they use cannot be relied upon to yield an answer that's rooted in truth. Um, you, you're an atheist and you've got a book on atheism. I've not read it yet. Um, I, I only found out about it after, um, I read your, uh, most recent book. Uh, but you use a similar approach when it comes to speaking to religious people. But I, how do you, how do you reconcile your own absence of belief with those who do have belief? Uh, I mean, it's, it's a very, very touchy conversation to have. Because you you you're, you're tapping into something that's extremely personal. Yeah, and and I've found the one thing you never have to worry about in these conversations just it you can just wipe it from your mind. People love to talk about themselves. Mm. They love to talk about. In the far more than a quarter century that I've been doing this, I have yet to have a single person, and I do this daily, who said to me, "You know what? I don't really want to talk about my beliefs or my mm. faith." Or my, they love to so that we can just. Cl- wipe that off the table but the second thing is um you, you have to start you know socrates says wisdom begins in wonder this 
Why does someone believe that? And if they believe it because they think it's true, that's very, very different from someone saying to you, well, you know, like my son died, and, and I wrote in my first book when my mom was dying, she wanted to, she wanted us to, my dad and I to bring her a, a statue of the baby Jesus that we had in her house. And even as a quite a staunch atheist, I didn't say, oh, ma, you know, that's bullshit or whatever. Of mm. course we brought, we brought that to her. Um, but you have to ask, does someone believe something because it's true or because it makes them comfortable, it makes them feel good? And that's a really good starting point. The but Westboro I, Baptist guy, Steve, mm. would for sure have said that it's true. I can guarantee you he would have said that. I think you're right. Um, but I think that applies to most of the world, actually. I mean, I don't think people choose to believe something if they think that it's wrong. Yeah, I think and some, some people have said that the in atheism is that while the Pascal's wager, are you familiar with that? Like, yeah. you should believe in God because you're hedging your bets is the bottom line is that that's not true belief. And many evangelical Christians have said, no, that's not an argument for God, because you can't truly believe based upon that. The philosopher Daniel Dennett talks about a really important concept called belief and belief. We talk about it in the book. Yeah. So belief and belief is the idea, and Steve totally had belief and belief. Mm. You believe something because you believe that believing it makes you a better person. So if I believe this proposition about the world, vaccinations, equality, whatever, I will be a better person. Better people believe this, therefore I should believe this. When someone has belief and belief, it makes it very difficult to dislodge that belief. And those beliefs are almost always over moral things as opposed to empirical things. Oh, I'm 20 feet from the car. I'm looking at a car outside. I'm 20 feet from the car. Mm. Okay, well, I'll measure it to 21. The moment you enter the moral domain, people don't want to revise their beliefs. Uh, you've just reminded me of a uh, of something that Mark Twain said. Uh, he said that when you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to stop, pause, and reflect. Uh, and I, that's a pretty good it's a pretty good statement because it, you were saying something earlier about listening to the majority, which which obviously is important, uh, but not necessarily siding with the majority for the sake of siding with the majority. Surely. Oh. Oh, to be sure, to be mm. sure, and that's why that gets back to that idea of hygiene, belief hygiene. Mm. You have to not only listen to the majority, you have to just be sincere and ask yourself honest questions and be willing. Look, th this is not complicated. This is not a mm. Jedi mind. Be sincere, be forthright in your speech. The Greeks call it parahesia, speaking truth in the face of danger. That, of course, has limits. They killed Socrates. Be honest in your relationship. Be, be sincere with yourself and as long as you're willing to revise your beliefs that's the core to this whole thing are you willing to revise your beliefs the moment that you say no to that you become an ideologue steve i guarantee you is not willing to revise his beliefs because nobody wants to be wrong well be, well yeah nobody wants to be wrong. and then we talk about that in the literature it's called saving face and that's yeah. what they do in hostage negotiations and we talk about how to have impossible conversations build a golden bridge from mm you always want to give people an avenue to save face in the conversations. People will not, that's why, for example, when Mormons go door to door, they go in twos, right? Uh, so it's- Jehovah's Witnesses also do that. Yeah, they go in twos. And the reason they go in twos is because you're much more likely to help someone revise a belief or be more humble about what they claim to know if it's one-on-one. -on -one. That's why social media is 
terrible for this. And it's more in person in person, it's very, very difficult because they, they want to their their friends are reinforcing what they believe. People in those belief communities reinforce each other's beliefs. The ecosystem. So how did you arrive at this place in your life? <laughs> if you don't mind me asking. <laughs> what what place is that? <laughs> um this place where it's important to converse with people with different views uh, while the world around us is shutting everything down. How did, what made you arrive at this point? What was there something? Was it, is it, was it a gradual process? Were you always, did you always think like this? Or did you have an epiphany? I'm just interested in why people believe what they believe. And now that we've solved the question of why people believe weird things, we now know that preposterous mm-hmm. things, talking snakes, stuff like that. And the reason is that they're better at rationalizing from conclusions. I mentioned that before. Mm. And their moral mind overrides their rational mind. I just, I, be- I truly believe that people want to know what's true. Steve, the Westboro Baptist, he wants, to, everybody wants to know what's true. The problem is we don't, by the very fact that different people have different beliefs about things, substantive things, moral things, we know that someone has to be wrong. And so the only way to solve problems that I know of, literally the only way, is through dialogue and scientific skepticism. There's just no other way. The problem, and I'll be very blunt with you, is that that has taken an enormous toll on my personal and professional life. I'm sure. I know I know, I know. know some of the stuff that's happened to you yes, since the grievance studies. Yeah, people hate it. My colleagues hate me. I get spit on. People threaten to. But, you know, there's the other thing. People are very supportive, and they send me, you know, greeting cards and stuff that's very touching but I mean it takes a toll on you but I do think that unless we talk to people we have people in the academy Dawkins pretentious charlatans there's just no nice way to put it we have people who are pretending to know things that they do not know teaching other people and driving the society into a, a cesspool the other problem with that is that's undermining confidence in our institutions. So how did I get to where I am? I believe, I believed, I no longer believe in the university system. I believe in the university systems, I believe in education, I believe in dialogue, I believe in discourse, I believe in the Enlightenment project. I believe that we need to stand on our own feet. We have incredibly serious problems, ecological problems, you know. When you said that, when you watch the world, I thought you were gonna say when you watch the world burn. We're seeing the world burn, we're seeing these low scale insurrections, we're seeing ecological issues, plastic in the oceans. And the only way to deal with that is through dialogue. Because if you don't do that, then you get a strong man, right? We need an infrastructure in place that allows people to talk to themselves. And we have exactly the opposite in place. I'm sick of it and I'm over it. I'm done with it. Do you think, to move on. Do you think the mainstream media has had a, an integral role in this? The mainstream media is mostly woke. Yeah. Because yeah. people who, the grievance studies folks, and that's the other thing, we've lost the culture war. We are losing the culture war, and unless we win this, we're all so, fucked. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah. A, yeah, sorry, it's a great Go thing, ahead. it's a great thing that you said that, uh, because Gavin McInnes, you know Gavin McInnes? Uh, yes. He was, he was on my show a few months ago, and he, he takes great pride in, in uh, talking about the culture war. Um, and it was something that I didn't think about at all until I heard him speak about it. And, and when I read um, Andrew Breitbart's book, uh, Righteous Indignation, which is the best, it's the best autobiography, it's the best autobiography I've ever read. Um, and uh, 
he 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 spoke a lot or he died a few years ago he spoke a lot about um uh the culture war and and both he and numerous other people like gavin have said what you said we're losing the culture war because we're not we're not fighting back and and the only way to fight back is through conversation yeah the the only way for people in the culture war to fight back is the conversation but the next wave in all of this since douglas murray's book since excuse me james Lindsay and helen pluckrose have a book cynical theories is to go to the nucleation point is to break the gates of the academy how do you do and that you'll see what i'll do next Oh right, that's okay. my next thing. I will destroy the ideology. I'm in my att- I will attempt to destroy the ideology that's taken hold in cynical theories. You know, a lot mm. of people have talked about postmodernism and Derrida, and you, know, you mentioned Jordan Peterson, etc. Um, but they've never done. Lindsay and Pluckrose do something extraordinary in the book Cynical Theories, which will be on May. It's one of the most. It's like if you read one, ask the book to read, because it will explain exactly how we got to. Yeah. Apply postmodernism with stuff being in the university to talk to, to people. Douglas Murray's book, The Madness of Crowds. I've got that book. I just haven't read it. Yeah, it's brought it to the gates. My last Wall Street Journal op-ed about idea laundering brought it to the gates. Now we need to go inside the academy and just – it is an infestation and we need to extirpate the whole thing. Well, the great thing is uh, – the great thing for us here in South Africa is that we're always a few years behind uh, what whatever happens in the US, we we trail by a few years. So, uh, in situations like this, we can watch what what you do and learn from it, and uh, hopefully um, get into it before before it takes hold. You know, we've we've had some terrible, terrible, terrible uh, regressive attacks on on our on our universities. I mean, if you if you wanted to, you could go onto YouTube right now and see a video. Um, if you typed in science must fall you'll find this incredible video of of what happened at the cape town university uh where right. they, they had this I, that, yeah, do, do you know about it i know about it yeah decolonialism yes and, and i know yes. about yeah and so the one thing that we need to help us save is probably too strong in tandem with dialogue it's science it's science that's what we need. We know it works. And, you know, that Aubrey Lloyd, you can't use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. And we need to decolonize so, so, the sci- scientific method. I did an event with Faisal Omutar, who's a good friend of mine. This, this is not like a Western value. This is a human. You can be a wonderful scientist and be from Nigeria or from India or mm. from in, put in the country of your choice. Scientific skepticism, scientific method, Western values, compassion, dignity, treating all people with dignity. The whole idea of decolonist. Let me, can I tell you a quick story? Sure, yes. Interrupt myself, tell you a story. I was at an event (laughs) at Portland State University, and in the philosophy department, they they are putting in indigenous philosophy to the curriculum. And I personally think uh, like Native American philosophy. Okay. I don't know the first thing about it, but um, I think that's, I personally think that's a fantastic idea. And I think we should absolutely include other voices and mm-hmm. different epistemologies. Um, and then somebody who was a professor in the philosophy department asked another, he was, he was in a talk, asked another professor in the philosophy department, said, you know, I think it's a great idea, um, but I'm very uncomfortable with the fact that <coughs> I'm a settler. I'm a colonialist, basically. 
and I'm extremely uncomfortable with the idea that I would criticize Native American thought. And this speaker said, you know, I'm very uncomfortable with it as well, and we need to just let that sit. Sure. And I thought to myself, have you lost your fucking minds? Are you utterly insane? Like, the whole history of Western intellectual thought, maybe even from the pre-Socratics, but from Socrates to Habermas and in the present day, it's always been criticism, elinkus, mm -hmm. dialectic, dis distance, you, you, you dispute somebody, someone makes a claim, counter challenge, you challenge that claim. You don't just let something sit. So here's the problem. If you want to introduce Native American philosophy, it plays by the same rules that everybody else plays. Every other philosophy. It doesn't matter your identity markers of, you know, the fact that you're not Native American. It's insane to think only Amer Native Americans can criticize Native American philosophy. That's the antithesis of what philosophy is about. Oh, but you can't say that because yeah, you're white. That's the yeah, that's the attitude that's now institutionalized in the academy. And the people who should be flying the flag of reason are philosophers. But yet they've succumbed to the same delusions from the grievance studies people. They're like arms of grievance studies in the same orbit. Mm. And just think if you are actually a Native American scholar, how humiliated you'd be by that. What? Our, our philosophy can't stand up to the same process that literally everybody else's does, Germans, French, English, the whole thing? Like we're exempted from that, but that's the other problem is, am I gonna be the guy who sits, who stands up and says, well, wait a second, it needs to be subject to the same process as everybody else? That gets back to what you said of how do you deal with criticism? Mm. If I did that, I would have 100 people tweeting out or texting or whatever, Bogosian hates Native Americans. Yes. No, I don't hate Native Americans. If you're gonna introduce a, a canon, if you're gonna have it's just that simple the same well something similar happened to me about two or three years ago um, I was told by a colleague who a cartoonist who works for a major publication here he told me over the phone that I mustn't criticize black cartoonists because I'm white mm. and I found that utterly absurd I mean this I mean cartoonists are meant to be uh, the the uh, the the court jester you know, we're meant to ridicule and mock. We shouldn't have any kind of reverence for anybody or anything. Uh, and, and that in itself made no sense to me. And that was just pure identity politics playing, playing its toll. Yeah. And it's sad. I'll, I will, I agree, but I'll push back on one thing. Okay. It depends on how you mock them. Like if you mock them in terms of their ideas, totally fair game. Yeah. If you mock them in terms of their immutable characteristics, off the table. Yeah, you but know, what sane person does that? Lips. No, nobody. Mm. Nobody does that. Yeah. No, nobody. And that's why people have to manufacture straw men. Yeah. They have to say you're attacking something you're not attacking. And I don't even know if it's tall poppy or if it's to make you mm. feel bad or gain. It's virtue signaling to gain currency in their community. It's a complicated mm. problem. And yeah, all ideas should be up to be satirized. And the moment that you say, and there's something really interesting, you know. To, to switch back, so the um, you mentioned the Ilian's post and the cartoons, the the idea from the Islamic world and some prominent mullahs have said this. The reason about the cartoons, you shouldn't make a cartoon depicting the Muslim prophet Muhammad, mm. 
And it's not about free speech because you don't have free speech because you can't go around saying the N word. Yeah. You you have the expression the N word. Yeah, we, we we have it. We are, but we have a different word. But yeah. In South Africa. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, in this cultural context, that's what is the N word. Yeah. And the idea is that it's not really about freedom of speech because you protect certain speech like the N word. Mm. But, you know, you should also extend that umbrella to cartoons of the Muslim prophet Muhammad. Mm. The problem with that is that the N-word is based upon an immutable characteristic of a person, whereas a belief, like a religious belief, is not an immutable characteristic of a person. And we know that because there's a word that does not have its origin in, in um, it's not a Western word, it's apostasy. Mm. And in the Quran, it's very specific. The punishment for apostasy is death. And you can look at, don't quote me on this, I think it's nine countries now that have very serious punishments for apostasy. But the idea is that you should be able to criticize any idea, just not an immutable characteristic of a person. A belief is not an immutable characteristic of a person, so it should be capable of being criticized. And one more thing, you don't have the First Amendment over there. We no. have a First Amendment. So when you say you can't criticize, for example, the Muslim prophet Muhammad with a bomb in his turban, you're really saying there's a hierarchy with political speech being at the top. You, you, you're, it is an attempt to tell people that they cannot make political comments. But I mean, I, I'm, look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm something of a free speech absolutist in the sense that I think that you need more free speech if you want to fight hateful speech. Yes. Uh, yes. That's the best way to deal with it. I don't think censorship of, of anything really is, is, is good. Uh, but um, I wanted to read a comment to you, but I've, I've lost the comment. But it was basically, uh, it was basically in the, along the lines of, of differentiating between evidence and, and morality. But we did, you know, you did touch on that. But a lot of what happens in this postmodern uh, um, field of, of life is very much around being a good person versus being a bad person or the idea yes. of it. Um, it's what, in other words, if you, if you feel, I, I don't agree with affirmative action. I don't think, I think it's racist by its very nature because discrimination based on the color of somebody's skin, no matter how you spin it, um, I think is still, is still racist. But I can, I can understand how so many people think that it's a good thing because it makes them it makes them seem like they're compassionate and that they are they're trying to rectify something that was that was bad in the past and if they go against it then they're a bad person so that comes down to morality not so right we, we already have the solution for that and the solution is not a quality of outcome it's quality of opportunity yes correct and to, to make a quality of opportunity there's I mean this is why I'm a liberal uh, there's no question about it. You have to have some kind of a graduated tax where mm. the people at the top are taxed more, and that goes into having um, better school systems, regardless of race or gender or sexual orientation or zip code. You don't know if you know what a zip code is, but basically the, the yeah, where someone lives. A zip code is essentially the same as a postal code. Uh, okay, yeah, mm. so the same thing, mm. yeah. So uh, we have it's a quality. We we should construct fair systems, which is a rationally derivable principle, which we just talked about. We should construct fair systems in which everybody has a quality of opportunity, mm. and then a quality of outcome is totally irrelevant. What difference does it make how many female umpires there are? It's totally irrelevant. What but difference I mean, does it make how many people are gay in an orchestra or something? But what's quite funny, and I don't know if you've noticed, but it's actually eating itself. Um, alive because if you look at um let's say 
boxing or ultimate fighting where you have gender fluidity you've got men uh, women uh, sorry men identifying as women fighting against women and putting them in hospital because they're cracking their skulls uh, this is a this is a physical manifestation of of okay you, do you see what i'm saying okay let's talk about that yeah. so that's in greek eating the snake eating its own tail is called an oboros yeah so let's talk about that so the lens so how are we to view that yeah. the lens that i recommend that we look at this through is fairness so let's take a look at um people born this is the terminology is weird but people born with a penis who later <laughs> self right i mean the whole the, the terminology is very very weird <laughs> and it, even navigating the terminal you make one mistake and everybody goes berserk but so for those folks who want to use a different restroom than, for example, a, a binary male restroom, mm. it would seem that it doesn't impact fairness. There's nothing unfair about that. But for people born biologically male to participate, particularly in MMA, you know, I'm not talking about chess or sewing or something, yeah, yeah. combat yeah. sports. It is my friend Matt Thornton says it's not a it's not a fight it's a bloodbath it's a beating yeah what's what's it that, what's beating. that person's name Felon Felon Fox I think oh yeah 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 and you also see that with uh, the transgender cyclist now yes who's, who's academician as well I don't remember mm. her name but the issue at stake in those contexts is fairness so it's not fair to the other competitors so because it's not fair that's how you rationally derive the fact that you don't let people born with certain sex organs participate in other events. And, um, okay, so go ahead. I see you looking at the comments. You have a few more you want to read out? No, no, no. I didn't want to interrupt you, but someone's asking, what is a binary male? <laughs> you mentioned binary male. What is a male? So the binary restrooms are male, female. And the, the, the new approach, and my kids are telling me this all the time, is that sex is not binary. It's on a spectrum. And it's, it genders on a spectrum. And so, um, so there you have it. Have, have your kids told you what gender they are? <laughs> yeah, I, I just read that Landau Calrissian, the actor, I can't remember his name, came out as he also identifies with his pronouns or her pronouns or she, he, or she, I can't remember, but I thought that was interesting that you see this, and Douglas Murray talks about this mm. happening in cluster effects. This happens in groups of people. Also, you mentioned free speech. You should look at uh, Angela Merkel's recent yes. speech from Germany. It was terrifying. Yeah, I saw that, um, where she said that, that people must uh, uh, censor their, their words. Yeah, and so th there's an idea that mm. you don't want to once we start going back, I think it was Ronald Reagan who said, we're always one generation away from losing our freedom. Yeah. I and mean, that's basically what it is. And I don't understand, if, if you look, the thing that's so disheartening to me is if you look at the generation coming out of colleges now, mm. the percentages of those kids, I'll call them kids, who believe that speech should be censored if it's harmful or if it's deemed inappropriate, those percentages are the highest they've been since polling began and that's an enormous problem because again they are matriculate they're going into google they're going into microsoft we have a woke culture now yeah and the woke culture part of the problem is you know when we did the london event we 
I think the, it was a play on in postmodernism, speaking truth to social justice. And people would come up to me and say, well, what do you have wrong with social justice? Part of the problem is that these folks have changed the meanings of words. Yeah. They sound good, social justice, diversity, equity, inclusion. And if you, they've rigged the game. So when mm. you criticize that, like why would you be criticizing something that's so good? Well, it's actually not good. Yeah. It's an anathema to civilized society. Did you, so, did you see that documentary called The Red Pill? Say again? Did you see that documentary called The Red Pill by a feminist yes. Cassie? Australian woman, yes. Cassie J. Um, yes. And, and there you see how, how the modern feminist um, movement has been taken over by that sort of woke, sort of postmodernist culture. It's, feminism has gone from second wave feminism, which is kind of equity based feminism, treating people equally, et cetera, to third wave feminism, which is a type of in, insanity in print. I think James Lindsay called. Mm. I love his his uh, his uh, term. He did a, a book review for a, a, a critical diet something. He called it an insane asylum in print. <laughs> um, we. It, it really has become an insane one, and, and it's actually worked against. You should check out Camille Paglia and, and Christine Hoff Summers' work on it. They've had yeah, some great conversations. I know Christine Hoff Summers quite well. well, yeah. I'd love, I'm, I'm trying yeah, to get she, onto the yeah. show as well. I can make that connection. She's a good friend of mine. Oh, thank you so much. Um, listen, I just saw the time, and I, I didn't realize that we've actually gone over time. You've, 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 ah. you've stayed longer than you promised, so I, I do appreciate that. Um, the comments have gone quite berserk I, I just can't I can't get through the comments uh, but maybe I'll just read one you more to you more, you want to do a couple more comments before we go yeah do you, would you mind yeah sure I, I, I'm just gonna eat lunch uh, uh well I've, I've already had supper <laughs> what's the sorry what um you're in Portland now is that right yeah Portland Oregon it's 11 11 oh okay all right um, I know it sounds like I'm repeating your highest standard. So, okay, so they're getting, the comments are getting quite philosophical. They're saying that what, what you're speaking about essentially is, is achieving a higher state of mind, <laughs> a higher state of being, uh, seeing beyond uh, the sort of outside, the superficial, and, and going into the ideas. That's essentially what I'm, what I'm understanding from, from some of these comments, which I think it probably yeah. is a fair comment. Yeah, I, I think that the give me comments of people who disagree with me. I like those the best. Um, and most people please. are most people do agree with you. Yeah, um, okay. I, uh, which is quite annoying. Uh, okay, someone's talking about Costa Semenya, but that's from earlier. Do you know Costa Semenya? No. Okay, Costa Semenya is one of South Africa's hero um, long distance runners. She runs, I think, eight hundred meters, but she. Um, yeah, she's intersex. Is yes, that it? correct. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's yeah. correct. Yeah, yeah, and there's lots of controversy around her, um, and you can't you can't really criticize her because then you're called, uh, well, sexist, but you're also called a bigot and you're called racist because she's black, um, and so it gets very complicated. So you, I think you have to navigate that minefield very very carefully, which is quite a, which is quite upsetting uh, because you should be able to still speak about these things. Um, in, in my view, that is. Uh, you should be able yeah, to speak yeah. about all these yeah. things. Um, I'm struggling to find any comments here that disagree with you. Uh, <laughs> that's, you that's, that's that. Wait until it goes on YouTube. I never read the comments um, myself. Someone's saying your morals are subjective. Um, you, okay, that's going yeah. further back. Yeah. Do you get objective morals? Right. Like, oh, I well, guess you, like you have, murder. You have morals that are, that are rationally drivable. 
But as long as you're, I think the key, a key emerging theme in this conversation is as long as you're willing to revise your beliefs and your morals. And I know that I've revised a lot of policy positions and ideas that I've had about, about things. Okay, give me one that agrees and then we'll jet. Okay. Um, guys, please give me a comment uh, if you if you are listening to me now, which I know you are. Okay, uh, wait a few years. Okay, someone's saying that South Africa's very far behind the U.S. Uh, in t- someone's talking about Taoism. I don't know too much about that. Do you know anything about Taoism? Taylorism. Taoism. T A O. Taoism. Oh, is that I say it? Yeah. Uh, well, I guess more than you. <laughs> uh, no, not really. I don't know too much about it. Um, I mean, not not anything I could speak intelligently about. Um, As a general rule, I don't speak about things unless I'm published in that that area. No, I'm sorry. I'm struggling to find any comments here that are that are are worth reading out loud. Um, a lot of them are. How it happens with the comments is that there are a lot of conversations that happen within the comments section. Oh, okay. Um, and they kind of. So while you and I are speaking, then they kind of speak about, I don't know, oh, okay. or whatever it might be. So there's nothing, someone's, now they're having a conversation about Carsis Semenya and whether or not she's female or male, etc. Um, and I, I don't know if that's a fair conversation to have because I just don't know the science. Um, yeah, I'm certainly not the right person to talk to. You should talk to someone like Deborah So or someone who has yeah. domain-specific PhD and understands that. Someone um, says, says yeah, someone says, yeah, Socrates talks about fulfilling the soul. Do you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think so. I think we need to be careful when we, when we talk about what that means. And, you know, it all comes back to some of the values we've discussed how to live a good life, how to live, be in a community in which you make productive co- mm. contributions. And you know, getting back to what we talked about before, I think your friend Steve or your guest, former guest Steve, thinks that he's doing just that. Yeah. And so how do we reach across divides and have conversations with people? And I really do think you did a great job Thank at you. letting his letting him air his views in a way. I, um, I would only make one suggestion is that I would have uh, I would have front loaded the scale from one to ten a little sooner, so it would give listeners like so. You asked this as a very last question. I would have front loaded it, and then I would have coupled that with a disconfirmation question. Like, is there anything that could make you could at least in theory mm. make you question or challenge? What would that be? What would that look like? And also remember, when it's it's fair game for him to ask you that, right? Yes. So. He can, you can ask him that, but when he asks you that, you should have an answer for that question. Yeah. That's a totally fair question. Yeah, is a killer question. Here we go. Are you ready? Yeah. Someone's saying that, are you rigged in your atheism? In other words, could you change away from atheism? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And I've thought about that. I've given a talk at the Freedom From Religion. I've actually published things about that. What would it take for me to change my mind? Yeah. So, I, I don't know how much time you have, but this no, is No, please, go on. In, in, fact, he, in fact, he's asked a second question to that. He's saying, are you willing to change your mind on your, he says, belief? <laughs> um, oh, sure, absolutely. Meaning atheism. Absolutely, yeah. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so, so please. So, I'll end with this because this is a long, complicated question. <laughs> so, what would make me change my mind mm. about... God. I won't do theism in Christ because that's too specific. Let's just talk about that there's a God for a second. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
In order to answer that question, I think it's important to step back and ask a prior question in that, what would make you not change your mind? So I'm gonna answer that question first, and then I'm gonna answer, okay. So, Lawrence Krauss, the, 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 part of the physicist, theoretical physicist has something, and he says, if you walked outside, and all of the stars aligned and said, I am God, believe in me, what would you do? Well, I first thing I do is I'd say, holy shit. But would that be sufficient evidence for me to believe in God? Now, this is when your comments section people will go berserk. No, it won't, and I'll tell you why. It would certainly be sufficient for me to gasp, particularly if I wasn't drinking or on drugs, because you'd have to rule out other alternatives. You'd have to rule out alien cultures, time travelers, demons, and there's just no way you could rule that out. So you wouldn't know if the star spelling I am God believed in me believe in me was from an actual God was from God or gods or I am gods believe in me. Okay, so it can't what if they were glowing if you walked out in the street and there were glowing orbs everywhere and said, you know, God is real, you put your hand, they went through. Well the same the same objection applies. You'd be able to rule alternative explanations for that. So nothing empirical could do it. Well what if you so nothing empirical, like nothing in the world. So what would it have to be then? What about internal testimony, feeling states? Well, no, it couldn't be feeling states. It couldn't be feeling states because, well, this is both very simple and not, because we have different people who have, we have the unequivocal testimony of people who have feeling states about, you know, Muslims, for example, and Christians. And those beliefs, you know, many people don't know this, but Muslims believe that Jesus was not crucified. There's a particular sore, I don't remember what it is off the top of my head, but the vast majority of Christians, not all of them certainly, believe that there was a historical figure named Jesus and Jesus was crucified. Okay, so, but we have the unequivocal testimony of people who claim that they feel it in their heart, it's true. Mormons call it the burning of the bosom and they have some extremely weird words like the being in Jackson County, Missouri and the plates and all this nonsense. Okay, so it couldn't be anything internal it couldn't be anything external, so what would it have to be? So my answer, okay, so that's what it couldn't be. Now I'm gonna answer the question. It would have to be, and the best apologists from 1 Peter 3.15, the people who defend the faith, the best defenders of the faith, like William Lane Craig, they know this. They know that this is the way to reach people. It would have to be an argument that you used. Uh, it'd have to be something that's rationally derivable. You know, I asked, I did a couple of sit-downs with Dawkins and I asked him that question, what would it take for you to believe? And he said it, something like that it was spelled out in the numbers of pi. Like it was, there was something, or maybe you know, this is an argument called fine tuning, that the universe is fine tuned uh, for human life. That wouldn't do it for me at all, and I can explain why later. So it would have to be an argument. The best that they've produced in the last, you know, X number of thousand years is this thing called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. It's the best they have, and it doesn't work at all. The bottom line to the Kalam Cosmological Argument is everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. And what, what that argument God, doesn't work. Essentially, huh? so what you're getting at is what created God if God exists. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I went off on a monologue there, but it's a. The, it was a question that I couldn't just give a terse answer Not to. Sure. It really, yeah, yeah. So, um, 
we have the Victor Stenger, uh, the was a friend of mine, the, the, the former particle physicist, wrote um, God in the Multiverse, and he claims that, you know, there are competing explanations. Stenger claims that we live in a multiverse. You know, Lawrence Krauss claims that, you know, nothingness is inherently unstable. So the bottom line is it would have to be something that you reason to do. Right now, there is no argument. There is no nothing. There is no way to reason to God. So if I, but if I were given that, I would believe. But then, someone's asking now. Okay, as you predicted, there's quite a few comments resulting from that. But what is good and evil then? Is it just something? Nietzsche has a Nietzsche has an answer to that in the genealogy of morals, mm. where he talks about. Before, if you just think back long ago, there was good and there was bad. And then the seminal event of human history, which is the birth and death of Jesus Christ. In that, what was good didn't become bad, but it became evil. And what was bad became good. It's complicated, but I would suggest that reading the genealogy of morals for that. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, think about the last word, the alleged last words of Christ on the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, it's a very intense way to frame it. Good and evil are, um, it's particularly the word evil. Like when you use the word evil, it's like imbued with a supernatural. It's imbued with a kind of extra percept, something beyond perception, the phenomenological realm. Well, no, it doesn't have to be. I mean, murdering someone is evil. Well, that's, so, okay. Uh, so, all right. I don't know how much time you have, but we, we have to unpack that. Okay. Murdering somebody is wrong by definition it doesn't matter what definition yeah because well you use the word murder so there is a phenomenon mm. there is an occurrence person a walks up to person b like on the london bridge and starts stabbing them and takes their life now what word you choose to use so nietzsche says there's no moral phenomena only moral interpretations of phenomena you put the word murder on that i would also put the word murder on that but let's say a coach runs across and you freak out or you're, you're going to say your wife, but I'll leave her out of it. You freak out and start jumping up and down the cockroach. The vast majority of people would say you killed the cockroach. Would a Jane say you murdered the cockroach? I don't know. But the idea is that there was a phenomena. You attached a word to the phenomena in the same way that you attach the word evil to the phenomena. There's nothing evil intrinsic in the world. That's a word that you use to attach it to that phenomena. You hooked it to the phenomena. That's that's quite interesting uh, because in the in the animal kingdom there is no evil; they just act instinctively. So a lion doesn't know that it's doing something wrong exactly. if it kills a buffalo, but but a human knows that it that he's doing something wrong if he kills another human. Yeah, not not only that, humans don't don't say, "Well, you a lion ought not to kill a gazelle." Because that's a moral imposition mm. on it. So we need to be very careful. People have been betwixt by language. We need to be very careful about the words we use. You know, is eating too much broccoli bad for you? Well, yeah, it is. It's too much of anything is bad. So it's too too much bad is contained within the idea of it. But I think that answers your question about, or at least points to the question about evil. Sure. Okay. Well, uh, the comments have gone quite. Uh 
quite active now, but I, I, I've had you for <laughs> I've had you for for a lot longer than you promised. So I'm going to let you go and have lunch. Okay. Um, Peter, it was a great pleasure having you. I was very excited um, that you agreed to to come chat to me. Uh, you have, as I said. Um, impacted my life for all the right reasons with your no, with your latest book and i I've, I've put a link to amazon um underneath the video i want everyone who's watching please go and buy the book buy get the kindle version get the audiobook the audiobook is narrated by peter um so so Thank you. so that's the that one you know that that's great because all the nuances are there because you know what you're what you're reading uh and of course uh, the paperback as well so um, I think you, I think in South in, I think South Africa, knowing how to navigate impossible conversations is more important than ever. So um, I hope I, I really appreciate your time, Peter. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, and thanks for all the questions from your listeners. Thanks, Jerm. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.